Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for already feeding us with the word of truth and the gospel preached, and Lord, and the word of truth at the table. And Father, you meet us again and again in your Son to sustain us and to encourage us in the hope of the gospel. And I pray for these friends who are here that you will strengthen them, that you will help them, Lord, in their lives, that they would, by your grace, be shaped by the truth that you have spoken into them through your Son. And Lord, today as we kind of wrap up our final uh, time together in this series, I pray, Lord, again, that you'll do what we cannot manufacture and that by your grace you would help us to have access and a point of entry into your word for the sake of our own souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hi. This is it today. Um, final day of our, of our four-week series that moved from Colossians down to Colossians 1. Uh, you've been gracious with me on that. Um, I have my three little nieces here today. I'm going to embarrass them. They're staying with us for four days with my boys, so pray for them. Um, their parents are missionaries on the island of Palau, which is in the Micronesian island chain, so they're here for a year on furlough, and we're glad to have them. Today was their first day with Episcopalian type, so um, yeah, big sigh. Okay, let me read to you the text that we're doing today in Colossians 1, verse 24, really trying to get through, actually 21, try to get through the end, and we'll just pick and choose, so we're going to do some cherry picking. Uh, Colossians 1.21, and you, and that's important, it's going to kind of come into play with what Joe has already preached on this morning, and you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Provided that you continue securely established, and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. And then Paul says, I am rejoicing now in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That's one of those verses that really demands some attention, and I'll have to just confess to you this morning, I'm still not sure... I have my mind around it. Um, so if I don't talk about it this morning, you'll know why. Uh, verse 25, I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden through the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery? This is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is, whom, it is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. Now, if you will recall, as we've moved through Colossians 1, what we've seen taking place in Colossians 1 is Paul giving us a cosmic view on the work of Jesus Christ. He's taken us from the particular situation at Colossae, where Paul begins this letter by telling, him that, telling them, I pray for you, I give thanks for you, 
And in my thanksgiving that I give to God, I remember and I'm thankful that the gospel has been planted in your midst there in this church in Colossae, and the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing. And then Paul makes this incredible statement, as it is throughout the whole world. So the statement about the gospel is planted, it bears fruit, it grows, and it's doing so both in Colossae, which is a microcosm of what is going on in the whole world. And I was just reminded about this in a way with my, my brother-in-law who was here. He showed us their video that they did of the island of Palau. They started a church there in Palau. They're going to march, begin to move out to some of the islands that are surrounding it. And I look at this video and I see these Palauan um, young men and young women and older men and older women coming to faith in Jesus, learning to love the scriptures, becoming evangelistic in their own instincts as they look at their neighbors and the world around them. And I think, you know, Paul was on to something, wasn't he? I mean, he was an apostle for a reason. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world, as it is even in a place like Birmingham, Alabama. So Paul gives us this view of what the gospel is doing, and then he goes panoramic on us to allow us to see the cosmic scale of Christ's atoning work for both humanity and the world. I, I really think Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and I said this last week, may be one of the best sums of Paul's theology that we might find. Christ, the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one who, by whom the creation was, was first created and now is also sustained. Jesus Christ is the very means by which the particles of the universe hold together so they don't fly apart. That's our Jesus. So whatever view of Jesus we've had, I think Paul is pressing us again and again to say, our view needs to get bigger. It needs to be more expansive. Yes, Jesus died for me. That's true. We're going to get to that in a second. Jesus did that. But the atoning work of Jesus has a scope that's universal and cosmic in significance. The whole world, I mean, or, and here's the flip side of that. I haven't really talked about this. But the flip side of this is the reality that sin has had a cosmic effect as well. You know, we tend to think of sin primarily, at least I do, tend to think of sin primarily in terms of the bad things that we do. I see lots of that in my own home, right? I see lots of that in me, right? just the bad things that I do. And Paul definitely has a category for sin like that. But there's a larger category for sin that Paul is working with as well, and it's, for lack of a better term, it's apocalyptic in nature. It's big in nature. It's a sin as this alien hostile force that is in opposition to all things that God is for. Sin and the world and the cosmos, all of these have been influenced by original sin and have now set the world and its order against God and his kingdom. We're going to see this, how it relates to us in a second. So here's this cosmic battle that's been going on between sin, which sets itself up over against God and his kingdom, and God who is setting all things according to his own pattern. And it's been a cosmic battle. I mean, think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. The law, which is good and holy. Of course it's good and holy. It comes from God. God gave the law. But sin, and I think of that term there again in this cosmic view, but sin took that which was good and turned it to the very means of our death. Sin did that. 
So there's been this battle between sin and the universe that's been going on that really goes beyond really our own frame of reference into corners that we don't really understand. I don't understand all of it, but I believe it. We talked about this a little bit last week about the devil and his minions. I mean, to, you know, that sounds very unmodern to affirm those such things. But to believe that those things are operative and at work and that there's been a cosmic battle going on. And in Jesus' atoning work, there is this step on Satan's head. Now, for those of you who have done some work in the atonement and have thought about the atonement, let me step back and make sure we're on the same page here. What it is that Jesus did on the cross to bring sinners back into relationship with God. And there are historically three models for that. The models are Christus Victor, Jesus is victorious over Satan. There is the moral exemplar model, and that is Jesus models for us self-giving. And then the model that I believe is at the heart of the biblical message, though I believe in the other two as well, but at the heart of the biblical message, is the substitutionary model. Jesus died in our place, taking on his own judgment for us so that we can have peace with God. So I believe that's at the center. But the first one, that Christus Victor one, which was really at the heart of the early church's understanding of the atonement, is something I would affirm too. And that is, in Jesus' death, he conquers the world. He conquers Satan. He conquers sin and puts his foot on their head, all of them. I don't know if you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, um, but Mel Gibson's The Passion is sort of riveted, although sort of driven through with a kind of medieval Catholic theology. And it, I don't know if you felt this way. I mean, it's very hard to watch. I'm not in line to watch it anytime soon. Um, but it's kind of like a Caravaggio painting coming to life, isn't it? I mean, it's like a medieval painting that's coming to life right before your eyes. Um, but do you remember the scene at the end, you know, when Jesus dies and there's that satanic figure that's around and then that one drop comes and it's as if the universe turns upside down and, and the Satan figure begins to scream. It's very moving, actually. Um, I believe that's true. Right? I mean, whatever Gibson was trying to capture there, I believe is true. And I believe it's true because of Colossians 1.15 and following. Jesus in his atoning work, yes, he had you and me in, in view. He had us in view. And he also had the ordering of the world back to its new created state in view as well. In that same Gibson movie, and I hate to sort of draw on it, but in that same Gibson movie, do you remember that scene when Jesus is going down the Via Dolorosa and he's got the cross on his back um, and he falls under the weight of his cross and his mother, and that the mother uh, image that goes on throughout that movie is quite stark. The mother's in a kind of a side alley. And one of the apostles comes to her and says, you know, go to him, Mary. And she has this flashback um, to Jesus as a little boy falling. And she, you know, it's all in Aramaic. And she yells out, Yeshua for him. And it's very moving. She, there's some poetic license here for Gibson. But it's the kind of poetic license I'd go, you know, maybe not this, maybe not that, this. Right? It's okay. <laughs> I was with my son Jackson in the emergency room um, Friday night because... No, he's fine. Um, it, it was $150 on the toilet was what it was. Um, but we were there, you know, for three hours. And, and um, I kept asking, Jackson, how's your elbow? And he'd go, mm, you know, like that. It's all right. um, but the, this one area of poetic license that, that Gibson takes is when Mary comes to Jesus and she finally has that face-to-face encounter with him. And he's about six inches, his face is about six inches off the ground along with hers. 
And really it's the fulfillment of the prophet's prophecy from Simeon, is it not, that a sword will pierce your own soul, and this is what's going on right there. And do you remember what it is that Jesus says to her in that moment? Behold, I make everything new. See, that view right there, then that moment, where Gibson allowed the book of Revelation to come into the actual atonement itself, is all mediated in a way through Colossians 1. What Jesus is doing on the cross is making everything new. And we live in the hope of that now. Yes, we're caught in the tension. But it is an assured reality, Colossians 1.15 and following. An assured reality. That is our hope. It's not a hope as the world conceives of hope. It's a hope that's, that's secure on a firm basis in the word of truth in Jesus Christ. That he has made all things new, he is making all things new, and he will make all things new at that final moment when I believe in the resurrection of the dead comes to its fruition. So when Paul begins to talk about the whole world and the cosmos beginning to to wrap around what Jesus is doing on the cross, we're just beginning to scratch the surface. It's huge. It's it's cosmic in scope. And that's uh, for us. I mean, Romans 8, right? Remember Romans 8? These little throwaway lines from Paul that you go, there is um, an iceberg underneath the surface here. I remind my students, tips of icebergs are still icebergs. You know, there's a lot there to deal with. But to recognize that there's a lot underneath when Paul says that all of creation is groaning for him to come and make all things. All creation groans. What do you mean? It means this whole world and the whole universe is waiting for Jesus to come again and to make all things new. And by the way, that's good news for the, I don't know what your view is of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and I hope that, I hope this doesn't puncture anything. I hope it maybe helps it become bigger. Um, but it's not disembodied souls floating around forever. That's, if that's the view, you're going to be real disappointed. Um, it's not, we're not just sort of floating around. and We are going to be bodies. I don't know how this is going to work. But glorified bodies, but bodies nonetheless, enjoying creation as it should be. What? I mean, I, just, I love that. Enjoying creation um, as it should be. So Paul gives us that view. And he moves. And this is what I like about Paul. Paul will not allow you... He will not allow me to have any distinction in our minds or create any false dichotomies or excluded middles when it comes to the transcendence of Jesus and his eminence. When it comes to the transcendence of Jesus, who is the Lord, the creator, the sustainer of the whole universe. And at the same time, recognizing as we come into the verse that we're dealing with this morning, and you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus sits on his throne. He's making all things new. He's got the world in view. And you were once estranged and aliens, enemies in your minds and enemies in your deeds. That's who you were. And Jesus has come to you. And again, this is a gospel word. And and it's it's a word that I have to tell myself regularly. Because it is something that we have to tell ourselves the truth on this because it's not a natural instinct. The world is massive. Now, I know that there's a kind of ideology that we're born with, especially as Americans. I hope this isn't offensive to you. But especially as Americans, to think that the world kind of revolves around us, right? Um, You know, even, well, I want this cut out, but even a religion like um, Mormonism, which is born really out of America, 
I mean, it, it takes a kind of a American ideology, I think, to allow a religion to be born that promises you your own planet someday. Right, so, um, and so I, I think, you know, at that, it, so we're born naturally to think that the world revolves around us. But I think as we mature, and if you, we watch the news and you read the papers and you realize, as I just found out, you know, there's 100,000 people on this small island, 100,000 people, that's the size of Greenville, South Carolina, right, of an island that's off the coast of Indonesia, and there's not one, not .0001 Christian presence there, right? Um, and that there are large civilizations in the mountains of Peru, right? And Iraq is still a mess, who knows what's going to happen in Afghanistan? In other words, when you begin to start thinking globally, I think it's very natural to kind of go, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm a blip on the screen, if that, on this big thing. And what Colossians 1 puts us to, I think, is to recognize, because of Jesus' continuing role as the sustainer of creation, is that, yes, you are a blip on the screen. And he does have the whole in view. And he is moving all things by his own purposes toward his own end. He is doing that. And he knows what's going on in Baghdad and in the church in China and in the mountains of Peru and in Bolivia. He knows that. And you. And you. You were once estranged. You were once hostile in your mind. You were once someone who set yourself over against him with your evil deeds. I think it's interesting how Paul sets this up here. Hostile in your mind, um, enemies in your thinking, and in your doing. Now, I can't prove this, and I actually don't even know if I would want to say it this way. But Paul's thought here lines up significantly with Micah chapter 2. Now, I don't know if Paul's drawing on this necessarily, but there's certainly a correlation to be made. What does Micah chapter 2 say? He says, and those of you who are in power, those who have set themselves up over against God, at night you devise your wicked schemes, and when the morning comes, you do it. Right. There's that move here between the relationships of our minds to our actions, right? You think about what you're going to do, you think about the evil that you're going to do, and in the morning you set yourself out to do it. And Paul uses that particular descriptor to show us what it meant for us when we were hostile, when we were enemies with, with the Lord. So this is what we were. We were hostile in our minds, we were hostile in our actions, and I'll go ahead and say this, wittingly or unwittingly, wittingly or knowingly or unknowingly. And this is where Romans 1, frankly, gets real nerve-wracking to me. I think Romans 1 may be one of the scarier parts of the Bible. Why is Romans 1 so scary? Well, because they, those who are under the wrath of God, the way in which Paul frames it is, they wanted the creation more than the Creator. And so God gave them over to their desires. I mean, we tend to think of wrath, at least I used to, or maybe still do, tend to think of wrath as the lightning bolts from the judgment throne. Now, that's wrath, right? You know how Paul's conceiving of wrath? Paul's conceiving of wrath by saying God allows the natural man, the man still in the old Adam, to have what he or she wants. In other words, to give them over to what, is that really what you want? Then I'll give you over to it, and you can, you can have it. Um, that, that's, the, that's frightening to me. 
to think about the wrath of God, not as the lightning bolt, but as God saying, you know what, I'll let you have it. Which is another way of maybe putting that is it's trying to lick a salt block to try and slake your thirst. I mean, that's just, it's just not going to work. So that's who we were in our own minds. And look at where Paul goes with this and as he moves on. But he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Holy, blameless, and irreproachable. So Paul says here that he has reconciled you through his flesh. Now, I don't know. um, Some of you have done Bible studies on this theme of reconciliation. Paul's the only one to use this term. It's interesting, and it's a term that's so embedded within our sort of Christian theological world that we tend to think that reconciliation is um, a big Bible theme, but it's really kind of Paul's term. And I think what Paul is a master of doing, I call, I call it linguistic jujitsu. right? I mean, Paul will take borrowed capital from the culture, and he will borrow a term that the culture knows and will infuse it with gospel doctrine, so to make a larger point, um, it's the kind of thing I think you see. I'm just—I don't really know these. I'm, I'm just getting into this mockingbird group. Some of you are way down the road on this. I'm just beginning to reason. I think of some of the things that they, I see them doing. You know, they take something that's common to the culture: TV, movies, ser- TV series, music, and then they reflect with it and they wrestle with it from the standpoint of a Christian uh, framework of gospel reasoning. Paul does that kind of thing. What does it mean to reconcile? Well, within Paul's day, it was very straightforward. Someone offends someone else. So let's say I've offended Cameron, and I need to make things right with Cameron. Well, for reconciliation to take place, according to the Greco-Roman world, it's very straightforward. Me, the the one who has offended him, I need to reconcile myself to him by offering my apologies, by making amends in some way, by making right on whatever I took from him. Reconciliation is initiated by the offending party. That's the way in which everyone would have conceived of katalasso, reconciliation. And Paul says it's the complete opposite in God's economy. In God's economy, the father runs off the porch to find the prodigal son. That's how God's economy works. In God's economy, Jesus, the one who is the offended party, God the Father, the one who's the offended party, himself goes into the far country to bring back those who have offended him. While we were yet sinners, as we heard this morning so well exposited, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this is reconciliation. God makes the initiative toward those who have offended him to make things right. And how has he done it? He's, and now listen to the terms that Paul uses. In his fleshly body. I mean, Paul is kicking the Colossians and a, and a heresy that's present there, or at least creeping into the church, he's kind of kicking it in the knee. And he's doing it surreptitiously, the way in which a wise leader and teacher will do. He did so in his fleshly body. I mean, what was the system of thought that Paul was leaning against. It was a system of thought that valued the spiritual, non-material world over against the material world. And by the way, 
I think we have a lot of that, I'll just call it dualism, a play between the material world over against the, the spiritual world. A lot of that dualism has impacted and influenced evangelical piety through the 19th and the early 20th century in significant ways. Um, well, I'm, I want to chase that rabbit, but I'm not going to. I think it has. And the way in which it has is it's played the spiritual, right, over against the physical and material world that we are in. And I think when people, I mean, think about how that's affected our view of heaven as a sort of disembodied, immaterial world. It's, not, it's a material world. God is for matter. He created it. And you think about the Old Testament. God is in the Old Testament involved in, in the material world. That's who our God is. So when you think about how this relates to the gospel and it relates to the way in which Jesus has come into us, Paul says he's done so in his fleshly body. Our salvation, our reconciliation, our being brought into this big, I am making all things new, had to take place within God's economy by God, the second person of the Trinity, stepping into the world and becoming something that he was not. Now see, this is a really kind of dicey theological distinction. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not. We'll kick Arius in the knee there. Never, right? But there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not corporal, corpuscular, bodily. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. By the way, what I've just presented to you is the biggest theological conundrum that theologians have to deal with to this day, right? How can the immutable be mutable? I'm not even going to chase it. I'll just answer, I'll just answer it to you this way, because that's how God wanted it to be, period. Right? Well, why is that? Because God determined it to be that way. Let's go have lunch, right? That's how it is. Um, so, but that's a big issue. Jesus becomes flesh. And here's something that I think continues to, to startle us and continues to be so forever. I don't know how, how all of it works, but bodily, corpuscularly, right? Jesus is a body now. And my salvation depends on it. My, the, the, hope of, the hope of glory, which is our Christ, that's Paul's language, demands the fact that Jesus is bodily now. Because what did Jesus do? He reconciled all things into himself, and in doing so, he came down to humanity, embraced humanity, became humanity, so that he could raise humanity back up into the very life of God itself. And I'm in him. That's Paul's favorite language. And my being in him, my being located in him, in his body, is the whole hope of my salvation. I am Now, some will disagree with me, especially the Eastern Church. And this is the kind of disagreement that, frankly, I don't have a lot invested in. But I do believe that forever we will participate in the life of God. I don't think we become divine. I do believe that, that we will participate in the life of God forever because of our location derivatively in, in Jesus. And look at what Paul says is the outcome of this fleshly death that he did on our account. His fleshly incarnation, his becoming flesh. The result is that he now presents you holy, blameless, and irreproachable. And what, what a great triad, right? I mean, would you ever tell anyone in your family 
to describe, let's say you're having the family Thanksgiving, say something, you know, we haven't been together in years, say something to describe yourself. Well, Mark Ginolette, holy, blameless, and irreproachable. <laughs> you're like, yeah, right. Um, but that's Paul's language here. Not because of anything that we have achieved, but because of how Jesus presents us to the Father by the Spirit. Holy, completely set apart, completely untainted with sin. Our holiness is a derivative reality of our union with Jesus. We are holy by proximity. That's how we're holy. We're holy in Him, first and foremost. Number two, we're blameless. This is that great dream Luther had where Satan listed all of his sins and he said every word he said is true. And then Jesus stands up at the throne and says, but I've covered it all. We're blameless. There's nothing that the enemy, that the great accuser, the great lawyer, no offense to you lawyers out there, but Satan's kind of a lawyer figure in the Bible. Don't, Don't take that too far, but the great lawyer, right, in the Bible, Satan, will bring his case and Jesus stands up in the same courtroom and says, but I have covered it all. He's blamed. Nothing can be brought against his own. And the last one is irreproachable, without stain, clean, clean and pure. All of that happens because of Jesus and what he's done for us in his fleshly body. Paul's got a big view here in Colossians, a big view of Jesus and his lordship over all of creation, a big view of reconciliation and its cosmic impact, and he moves from that cosmic transcendental reality down into our own particular stories as well. And the last two verses that Paul says, and I'll just top there, Paul says at the end of Colossians, I strive, I toil, I labor. The Greek word there, toss a little Greek out, is I agonize for you all so that I can present you to Jesus, mature in him. Mature. And what is it the maturity that Paul is after? The maturity that he's after is that their knowledge and understanding of what Jesus has done for them will expand and grow in the process and the course of their lives. And Paul says, I strive, I agonize, I labor to present you all mature in Jesus which is a maturity which flows from a recognition of the gospel. And as the gospel, which is so simple, begins to grow in its profundity as we recognize both its cosmic impact and its impact on our own particular lives as well. All right, let's bat this around. Where are we at? I have time for some questions. What what do you want to fire on? Jim? You're a lawyer, aren't you, Jim? I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean that. I'm not going to answer that. Okay. (laughs) One thing that strikes me... Uh, Mark, is that it's a stumbling block for us in the 21st century that we cannot understand everything that you're saying to Paul's saying. We think if we can't understand it, can we believe it? You said that the, the conundrum between the immutable and the mutable is something beyond our comprehension, perhaps. So what do we do with it? Do we just accept it? I think the answer is yes, but we need to recognize in ourselves that stumbling block. Yeah. I mean, I'll, it's a great question, and you know, I'm, I'm very influenced and shaped in my own sort of theological journey by an early 20th century theologian named Karl Barth. Kind of lived into the mid-20th century as well. And Barth was referred to, amongst other theologians, as a dialectical theologian. And what I think was meant by that 
was that Bart and this group of theologians who are thinking about the Christian tradition in light of modernity too, the issues that you're raising, brought before us the fact that the Bible forces us at multiple locations to live in what seems like um, a tension that cannot be resolved. Just forces us into that. And instead of allowing one, like I, I come from a certain tradition in my own theological training that can sometimes skirt around some of these tensions for the sake of a, the, a, a theological clarity and precision. Whereas I think these early 20th century theologians allowed, like Karl Barth, allowed those tensions to remain, put them before us without very easy resolution on the back end, and recognize that in that dialectic back and forth is where revelatory things occur. The Spirit of God works in those seeming tensions that we see in the scriptures, and, and, and explosive and combustive things happen in that particular dialectic. So I think, you know, I, I wasn't always comfortable with this, and I'm not sure I still always am. But I am happier now, I think, to allow some of these tensions to reside without forcing myself to make the next logical move to bring them into... Now, now that's... The dangers in any of this discussion lurks in the generalities. I mean, we have to talk about specific things. But generally, I, I, I don't mind allowing the scriptures to create certain tensions that we, that we live in. Now, let me be quickly say this. And there are some things in the Bible that, frankly, there are no tensions. So, you know, so we have to sort of live into that as well. I mean, the, the, the flip side of this, Jim, I'm thinking on the fly, but the flip side of this is there's a kind of postmodern mindset, whatever that term means. Right? But there's a kind of postmodern mindset that I think revels in the tensions, which leaves us then with the inability to say anything positive, right? So there's a flip side to that. I'm not all for that either. Right? So I, you know, I, we'd have to sort of wrestle with that a bit. Yes, ma'am. I'm kind of rocked by something you said about reconciliation. And I'm, I'm trying to get my mind around in the practical sense of what you were really talking about. And the... You know, you th the mind goes to, I've been wronged, um, I want revenge. I mean, I'm a sinner, and, and I love what you said about what you think and what you do. I can't, I mean, I can work on my thoughts, but my thoughts, yeah. my, my devil works in my thoughts a lot, whether I do it or not. Right. Um, but what does that look like in a practical sense? Are you saying that people who have wronged us, we're supposed to seek out and make amends for our part in it or what do, what does that look like in a day-to-day -day life of yeah. this is why I teach in seminary I don't I like to not deal with the day-to-day -day life <laughs> <laughs> that Cameron these guys who are in the ministry they, they, they figure all that stuff out um, you know I, I, I really I, I'm, I'm becoming um, more and more convinced that the kind of question that you're asking there um, is why I'm so grateful that the wisdom literature is in the Bible. Yes. Because there's a call on us in the day-to-day -day reality. In other words, working with what the Bible says. I, Cameron forced me to deal with this on parenting this week, right? <laughs> like dealing with what the Bible says about something and then moving from that into the million and one scenarios that arise that are different from one another that demand for us to submit ourselves to what Scripture says as we move into that, but it takes wisdom. I think it takes the wisdom of a community. It takes wisdom of time to know how to move into those particular situations. So I say that first. But secondly, as difficult a thing as it is for me to say, right, especially when, when you think about how to work this out in the day-to-day, -day, 
I do believe that there's a practical ramification for how we conceive of forgiveness and reconciliation with others that flows from our understanding of the gospel. Yeah. In other words, keep fighting, keep trying. <laughs> yes. Okay, I got that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the you know part of the life of repentance, um, and so I do think there's a call to that, and that's. You know, I, I, again, I don't. I, I want to be careful because it's easy to be trite and aphoristic on these things. I mean, but it's, but it's, but I do think you're right to feel the pressure on us to think about reconciliation and how we reconcile with others um, as a move toward those um, who who have offended us. Yeah. I mean, sorry, sissy. Real, I mean, think about that even in marriage. Right? I mean, just on a practical. I'm thinking about the big things like race relations in Birmingham, Alabama. That's a huge thing in our backyard still, right? So on the big sort of systemic things, you know, that just takes continued reflection and repentance, right? But on the practical thing, like with my with my marriage, you know, I, I'm having to deal with that all the time, and I really hope Naomi listens right now. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. Did you want to come in on this? Oh. Well, she that's my daughter. Oh, got it. Got it. I could tell. <laughs> you can recognize Yeah. When you say mine and then hands, the, the piece that we insist on, I'm teaching at the university, uh-huh. it's mine, car, and then hands. Hmm. Because it isn't just mental hmm. and physical. It has to be washed yeah. through. Yeah. We, we have our quote-unquote religion. Yeah which uh, rationalizes a lot of things. Yeah. So you yeah. have to be serious about the struggle there. In the heart, yeah. Struggle here is one thing, but the struggle yeah. there is yeah. sometimes even tougher before you put yeah. your hands up. Thank you. Jocelyn. Uh, I was just going to say with reconciliation, I mean, and then we all have to struggle with our hurts and offenses. And I know for myself, I have to keep reminding myself that as a Christian, I am... It's not a request, it's really a demand that we forgive. And mm-hmm. yet, I realize we don't necessarily have the power to do that. Yeah. But I do think as we submit our will, God gives us the power to forgive. It may take a long time, and we don't yeah. necessarily forget. Yeah. But I think as time goes on and as we submit our will, it takes a lot of the, the sting out. Yeah. You are more able to, even if you never are reconciled, yeah. at least to on your end, yeah. to will to forgive releases you of a lot of the, if you mm. want to say, the poison mm. of unforgiveness. Mm. Because as the old saying goes, to, to not forgive is to is to drink the poison and expect the other to die. Yeah. And it really, I know for myself, selfishly, I want to be able to forgive because it is like drinking mm-hmm. and, and, and living it. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of reconciliation is just the working in your own heart to at least will to, to want to forgive the other yeah. person, even if you never are able yeah. to mm-hmm. work it out. Thanks, Jocelyn. You think about Peter. Peter thought he was being magnanimous with Jesus, wasn't he? I thought seven times will forgive. And Jesus is like, well, 70 times seven. You know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a hard call. And again, I realize it's easy to talk about that in the abstract, um, you know, working that out in, in, in our particular offense. And that's that's where the rubber meets the road, yeah? 
Jerry and then Jim. And if you need to go get your kids, you, you leave. Oh, I appreciate so much when you were talking about forgiveness. You kept talking on repentance. Uh, because when I was first studying scripture, trying to understand it, I was struck that the first sermon that he ever preached began with repent hmm. and not forgiveness. And to me, repentance is putting the, the horse before the cart. Hmm. That one must have the self-knowledge about hmm. oneself hmm. before one goes about hmm. saying, I forgive you hmm. for this and that, understanding your role in your way. I mean, hmm. you're, you're that. Thank you. Jim, I'll let you have the final word. My question here about telling Jesus still in, in the flesh, living in the flesh, and so forth. It's, uh, you know, if you, if you believe in angels, you know, so it's uh, encountered some people at crucial times. We're on a bike ride and 15 miles from home and around nowhere, the chain comes off the bike. And idiocy, I mean, recently trying to get the chain on something that gets stuck in there and they're closing in. And, you know, I'm bleeding and I'm just out of luck. We're. 20 miles from nowhere, and then we have been a biker for two hours. Guy comes along, fixes it. So, what's your name, Noel? I said, well, that'll work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been carrying my bike on my back for 20 miles. Could be there, the angels around us. He teaches the great chain of being in uh, English classes, so that's it. I see. I was down near the bottom. So. Yeah. Blessings to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.